Hi, everybody. My name's uh, Dan Moran. I'm a senior associate editor at Macworld. And uh, I'm here to talk to you a little bit today, uh, have a little panel discussion about developing for the App Store, the sort of ups and downs of it. Uh, and joining me, I have uh, Paul Kafasis, who's the CEO of Rogue Amoeba. You may know several of their products, uh, Audio Hijack Pro, Airfoil, uh, Piezo, the new recorder. Um, so he's had some experience developing with both Mac and iOS app stores. And I have Dave Barnard, who is the founder of AppCubby, who has also had a lot of experience developing for the, uh, the App Store. So sure. uh, I want to start out a little bit and talk. I know the App Store has been really contentious uh, in the few years since the iOS App Store started out. So I want to talk first a little bit about the ops of developing for the App Store and, and sort of get a, an idea of your experiences with uh, what you found to be beneficial about it, how it's helped your business, and what you think are really the positives of it? Well, I think the most obvious thing is, as a customer, it's certainly been incredibly valuable just to be able to find software so much more rapidly with, with much more ease than you ever were able to before. Uh, so I think, as a customer, I can certainly say, uh, especially using it on iOS, uh, just being able to find software has been phenomenal. Uh, in terms of, from a business perspective, that lends itself to all of a sudden having a whole lot more customers and potential customers uh, who are able to find your software where three or four years ago they weren't necessarily looking online or you didn't necessarily have the number of people looking online for software that you do right now. Dave, would you concur with that? Sure, yeah. Um, for, for me, I guess it's a little different. You know, Paul, Paul's had his company for, for quite a while now and sold independent software for a while. Uh, for me, I didn't have a company before the App Store. Um, I was uh, a recording engineer, uh, spent time with a, a lot of these things uh, for the, the past few years before I start, founded AppCubby. Um, I was a huge uh, fan of the iPhone, and when Steve took the stage and announced that uh, you know, for 99 bucks you could sell stuff in the App Store, um, you know, I just saw an incredible opportunity and uh, uh, took out a loan <laughs> from family members uh, jumped headfirst into this whole app development thing, and and um, within a month of the app store being launched, had a, had an app in the store. So for me, you know, my entire business, my livelihood, you know, um, you know, putting food on the table for the kids is all the iPhone app store. So it's pretty incredible to go from uh, from nothing to a, a sustainable business that's put food on the table for the last uh, almost four years now since I founded the company. So. Um, you know, for customers, I mean, it, it's just incredible. The App Store has, has redefined uh, software, especially the, you know, independent software. Um, you know, I guess we'll get to the challenges later, but, um, you know, the, all the amazing things you can do with your phone these days, uh, with the iPhone and with the iPad, um, you know, the App Store enabled that. You know, that developers can, can go in there and make money and, and have incentive to develop these really great apps, uh, that big brands, um, are coming out with their own apps, you know, from, I didn't even know that State Farm has an app. I have interns who straight, I didn't even know they had an app. And I saw like a, a, a commercial or I, I saw something that, you know, you can have your insurance card right there in the app. And, you know, I mean, think about that, like, you know, five years ago, you got in an accident and you're digging through your glove box and, and then you're hoping, you know, people used to tell you to, to keep a disposable camera in the glove box so you can take pictures of the accident. State Farm app has this cool little interactive thing where you take pictures, you draw the accident, and you submit it to them like right from the app. I mean, it's incredible, you know. And the App Store and, and Apple through their uh, iOS 
has just enabled a whole new um, era of, of innovation and, and excitement around software. And, and it, it's funny to even say software these days because app has become such a ubiquitous term. And, and it's funny even how app has made its way back to the Mac and other stuff that you know, we would call stuff you know, software application or, or some other like cumbersome word. And now it's like everything's just an app. And so you know, the, the app store and what Apple's done with iOS has, has really is transforming not just you know, business and software, but culture even, you know, Angry Birds and, and all these things. So it, it's been a wild ride, and, and I've been enjoying every minute of it. It, it certainly seems like there's a lot of visibility available in the App Store that you, it was a lot harder back in the day before it to uh, market your own stuff, uh, get people to come and buy it, get people to try it out. I'm curious, Paul, especially because um, you guys recently released Piezo, which is a little recording app, and you released it both in the Mac App Store and for sale on Rogue Amoeba's site. Now, that's the, that's the first time you've gone into the Mac App Store? That's right. That was our first Mac App Store. App. And how, how did you find you know, the experience, now that you have this product that's available in two different places, do you find that there's a positive differential for having it in the App Store? Do you find that like, it gets a lot more attention there or it's easier to direct people? Well, I mean, the biggest thing for... So as, as you mentioned, we had software before the App Stores and we had to do our own marketing and uh, eventually build up a name that sort of people recognize and hopefully hear about new products when they come out. Uh, with the App Store, you definitely... You know, it's, there's not nearly as much marketing that you're doing on your own. Uh, ideally, you're still going to do a whole lot of marketing because you want to get the word out, but uh, there's a lot less that you need to do right up front. Uh, as far as the comparison between releasing on our own and then releasing in the App Store, uh, the charts are the biggest thing. If you, if you use the App Store, either on iOS or on the Mac, uh, it's likely you're looking at some of the charts, the top charts, the top charts in the music category, top charts in the games category, anything like that. That's often how people are finding various applications. They're looking at what other people have found. And that's something that just didn't exist before. Uh, there was, you know, sort of uh, an idea of, oh, these are popular applications, or, oh, I've heard of that from someone else. But there was never one place that you could look and say, okay, this is what people are downloading right now. This is what people are talking about right now. And so, yeah, when we released Piezo and got a little bit of publicity for it, it got into the charts, and we saw a whole lot of people find it that way instead of finding it through us. Uh, which is something that we'd never been able to do before, just have these charts sort of self-perpetuate and, and perpetuate the success of it uh, by just staying in that chart and people see it in the chart and then purchase it and it stays in the chart. Uh, so it's something where, yeah, these, this one place where people can look and say, okay, this is what's popular right now. And like you said, you mentioned Angry Birds, and that's, a, that's an app that shot to the top of the charts and has stayed there for months, years at this point, I think. And it's something that, you know, again, it just wasn't, there, this didn't exist before. You didn't have the level of sort of what you'd call hits that you have with the app stores now. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was downloading Mac software when I was you know, a teenager or whatever in the 90s, and you had to sort of ferret it out. You had to go around and look around the web and check all these websites to try and figure out what, what was the hot thing, what was everybody talking about. And so the Mac app store, at least from a consumer perspective and from a media perspective, is seem it's a lot easier to have this one-stop shop, this resource to go to and look around and see what's actually available, what's new, and what people are talking about. Um, now, I'm a little curious from, a, from sort of a trade-off perspective. Uh, when the App Store on iOS first debuted, there was a lot of discussion over the fact that Apple's cut was basically 
And I think at the time, because it was so different from the way that software had been distributed before, it, it, raised, it raised a lot of people's hackles and they got a little upset about it. But I think now that we've seen nigh on, what, four years almost, three and a half, four years of, of App Store, it seems like that's not as much of an issue. People just sort of accept that as the cost of doing business these days to a certain extent. Well, I think it's something that, you're, as you say, it's been about three and a half years and uh, it hasn't changed. That number hasn't gone down, uh, hasn't gone up. But I, I think it's still something we consider. Uh, it's, a, it's a very large number. 30% of any one sale is going to be a, a good chunk of the money that you're making. And so it's certainly something we consider, but it's... I, I mean, it's like fighting gravity. You, it's, it's a constant, it exists, and you can't really do much about it. Uh, so if you want to be in the store, you just have to sort of accept it. It's not the greatest thing in the world. I mean, we'd certainly prefer it was 20% or 10%. Uh, when you look at online payment processing, if you use, you know, if you're just accepting credit cards, that costs you about 3 or 4%. And if Apple's doing something on top of that in terms of the charts, in terms of featuring your software, things like that, there's value there. But... 30% is still a pretty big number, but like I said, there's not really much we can do about it, and at a certain point, you sort of, it's not really worth discussing anymore just because it's a large number, we recognize it, and we either decide that it's worth it or it's not worth it. Yeah, and I have a, I have a slightly different take on that because since I, I didn't have an existing software company before, um, you know, for me, uh, launching an app in the App Store uh, in August of 2008, which is when my first app launched, um, to, to, uh, to, um, to launch an, uh, any kind of software and sell software on the internet. Uh, but prior to this, as, as Paul had done, you'd have to, to, to get agreements with, with credit cards directly or find a service. And, and a, a lot of the services to, to uh, take credit cards were expensive. And, and you know, he was saying 4 or 5%, but if you actually paid a service, that like took people's email and handled processing and things like that, you might even pay 10% or more. Um, and so, so for me to launch an app and not have to think about e-commerce at all, not think about credit cards, not think about any of that, um, I didn't have to worry about hosting my app. I didn't have to think, okay, you know, I need a scalable server that you know, has caching because what if you know, 20,000 people try and download my app today? You know, I don't have to think about any of that. And, and so, for me, it, w it was kind of like taxes. Like you know, uh, you want to drive on the road. You want to like you know have a functional government. Sure, you may not you know want to pay quite as much as you pay, or you know you can complain about policy. And and, and I do complain about policy in the app store all the time. Um, but it's like that. That's just that's just life. You know, that's the cost of doing business. That's just life. And 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 I've you know I've never begrudged Apple that 30%, and even it being 30%. For, for, for what I feel like they've done in creating and managing the app store, hosting the apps, um, and, and giving me detailed reports, and sending me a, a single uh, wire transfer every month with all the, you know, it, it's, it, it's really streamlined my entire business process to not have to do everything that you did for years. And so um, for me, the 30% was just not even a, it was such an afterthought. For, the, for, for as much opportunity as Apple offered in the store and for as much as they handled on the back end to make my life easier. Right, well, you were starting from scratch, and, so, and, and that's a very different thing, and, and that's what's been so transformative about this is that one guy can start from scratch, a couple guys in their garage can start from scratch, 
and they don't have to worry about exactly everything you just said, the hosting the downloads, setting up credit card processing, all of that, uh, and Apple takes care of that. And for an existing business as we were, we look at it and say, okay, our cost is going to jump from 5 to 10% per sale to 30%. Uh, if you're looking at it, you're saying, this actually makes it feasible for me to do this. And again, it, they both make sense. They're both certainly accurate. And like I said, it's something where, you know, the cost jumped and we just had to sort of accept it. And, you know, we've come to terms with it at this point. Yeah, as long as we're sort of on the topic of the finances, um, I think there's another really interesting aspect, which is to say we've talked a little bit about how uh, consumers have been enabled to find apps really easily. Now, they've also, I think one of the difficult things, and maybe, Paul, you'll speak to this a little bit, Getting users to pay for software was always a tricky value proposition. Now, on the App Store, it's still tricky, but it's kind of changed the way that it's tricky because there are a lot of free apps, and a lot of people you know, want to download free apps, and they don't want to pay for apps. But we've also got this sort of constant, what a lot of people, including Dave, I think, have called the, you know, the race to the bottom, which is this idea that we're going to sell apps, but we're going to sell them for a dollar. And so it's a sort of ascribed a value to what people think software is worth. Well, right. It's something where this stuff has been sort of commoditized and, and as you said, it drives the price down and, and there's a race to the lowest possible price, which at this point is, besides free, is 99 cents. And the biggest problem I see with that is that, again, I mentioned hits earlier. If it's a, if it's a hit-driven business where a few applications are very successful, that works for them. A 99 cent price works for them because if you're selling 10 million copies over a year at 99 cents, that's still a, quite a bit of money. But if you're selling your software for 99 cents and you only sell a couple thousand copies, you're really not going to nearly make nearly enough money to survive. Uh, and it's something where if the software has, you know, if there's a certain set value and it's really worth 10 or $20, but people have been sort of uh, conditioned to expect a price that's that low, uh, it's, it's uh, potentially harmful to smaller businesses that can't get those hits the way that Angry Birds is or the way that, you know, a lot of the big games and, and the bigger... Uh, more popular apps are. Uh, so it's something where, yeah, you mentioned the race to the bottom, and it's, it's definitely a concern uh, to me because we're coming from a model where, yeah, it was hard to get people to pay for software, but there was a perception of value there. And hopefully that's, that's sort of sticking around, and as new people come in and start buying software, they realize that, hey, a lot of this is smaller people, and they need to make a decent amount of money off of it. Uh, but it's definitely, there's potential for, for problems there when a, a big company can sell something like EA sells a lot of their games at Christmas time for 99 cents. And, you know, that doesn't cover the cost of making that game at all until they sell a couple million copies. And that's not something that most companies are going to be able to do. Dave, I know you've, you've played with pricing a little bit on, on some of your apps. What are your, what have your experiences been and what do you think you sort of, what's your takeaway from that? Yeah, so this is this is uh, this is very near and dear to my heart. I've have written a lot about this and thought a lot about it. Um, it it's 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 a really challenging thing because um, on the one hand, and as Paul was saying, you know, if if you're able to get a hit, if if you have an app that is is popular enough to to chart and stay in the charts, you know, one dollar can be a feasible price to sell software at. But the problem is. You have these amazing apps that, that that EA spent, you know, probably, you know, some of their budgets, even for iOS apps, are, are likely in the, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And so when when you're spending that much on, on an app, it has to get downloaded millions of times to get your money back. Well, how do I, as a small independent developer, spend time and money to build a great app if it's not going to get downloaded a million times? And at the end of the day, 
there's so much, there's so many great apps in the App Store that only get downloaded 10, 20 times a day, and that's that's just their market, you know. Like like um, one of my most popular apps, or the one I make the most money on, anyways, is uh, Gas Cubby, and like I know Gas Cubby's never gonna, you know hit the top of the charts because how many people really want to track their fuel economy? Well, there are some that do and they're really passionate about it. And so, so what I've been doing is, is, is charging a more premium price to find those users who are passionate about it and see the value and are willing to pay. But what I've seen over time is that, that their perception of the value that they're willing to pay even for this great thing has been eroding. So when I first launched Gas Cubby, uh, I launched it at, uh, at $10. And at the time, back in 2008, people were like, oh, wow, like, you know, you guys spent months on this really incredible, you know, deep app. And, you, you know, we did charts and, and export to, to email and, like, all these great features that, that you know, you wouldn't think of a fuel economy app. That's not that exciting. But, like, you know, we really were passionate about making a great app. And, and I had always, like had that little notebook in the glove box. So it's something that you know I was really into. Um, and so, so we launched it in uh, November 2008. And people are like, wow, this is an awesome app. 10 bucks, that's great. You know, I'm going to save so much time because I'm not going to have to pull out the calculator and, and um, uh, you know, have a notebook in the, in the glove box. And then you know, uh, people were buying it, and Apple featured it, and things were going great. And you know, sometime in 2009, I started getting these reviews, like $10 for a for, a, for an app, come on. And so sometime in 2009, you know, as me and other developers, and Paul wrote about it too, about the, this whole race to the bottom concept, um, you know, I said, okay, let me, let me try some out. Let me drop the price, let's see, you know, how that does. So I dropped the price to $5. Well, you know, now it's like, oh, $5 for this great, you know, fuel economy app. And, and so that rode me another maybe year, year and a half. And then uh, lately, I, I'm getting more reviews. Five dollars for a for an app? Come on! And so I recently dropped it to two ninety nine. And and this I mean this pattern just continues. And 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 it's it's a big concern for me for the long term prospects of independent developers creating apps for the app store and just writing software in general. Because when we get to the point where where people see software as only being worth ninety nine cents. How do you make a viable business around that? And, and unfortunately, what's happened is you have the Zengas of the world and all these free-to-play apps and games where, where, where they, they know how to extract more money out of a user, but they do it through psychological manipulation. I mean, a lot of these free-to-play apps, like they have psychologists on staff trying to figure out how to like trick you and, and entice you into buying. And, and is that the experience you want to have with your iPhone when playing a game? But, but that's the business model that has been developing around the App Store because the value perception goes so low that it's hard to sell an app. So if you can't sell an app, what do you do? You give it away for free and find other ways to make money. Well, advertising in mobile apps, um, you know, I've done a lot of experimenting with advertising. Unless you have a direct relationship with an advertiser where you can sell higher dollar apps and target the ads better and things like that, um, if you're just using ad aggregation like iAd and AdMob and like and, and things like that, you're you're making very little money. I mean, it's it's pennies. Um, I have a, a mirror app. Um, don't ask. Think uh, <laughs> it's downloaded about three thousand times a day, and I did it as a fun little experiment to test ads and stuff. Three thousand times a day, and um, I make about uh, ten dollars on ads. 
And so, I mean, this, you know, for me, it's been really interesting to kind of get to experiment with this app and see what's, you know, see what ads pay and see um, what a, a semi-popular app can do. But you would think an app, I mean, that's pretty good. 3,000 people a day are downloading my software. Like, you know, that's pretty cool, even if it is just a fun little stupid mirror app. Um, but I don't make hardly any money. And so, so if you can't advertise and make money and you can't sell an app, how am I going to stay in business? And, and that's an open question, honestly. Like, I don't know. Um, you know, I wrote a piece recently and, and I ended the piece saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know how long I'm going to stay in business because this is, it's getting tougher and tougher to sell things in this, in these app stores and it's tougher and tougher to make money without moving to these business models that, that I just don't agree with both philosophically, morally, or, 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 or otherwise. Well, so you, you mentioned dropping the price over time. Did you, see, uh, did you see revenue stay the same when you dropped the price? Did it go up? Did it go down? Well, see, and that, that's, that's what's been really interesting um, is, and, and I'm, I'm probably actually going to raise it back up from uh, $2.99 back to $4.99 soon. Uh, did you I, see the same volume at each I, point, and therefore you're losing money by having that lower price, basically? Well, not, not quite. So, so with, with my most recent sale, which just ha this just happened like a month ago, I dropped it from $4.99 to $2.99. Uh, initially, it spiked, and so there was uh, the better part of a week where the volume at the lower price still made more money every day than it was making prior, um, but that leveled off. And so at this point... Uh, I'm selling more apps, but making slightly less money on the app. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's a balance, and, and that's why I haven't raised the price back to 4.99. Because in a way, I don't. If I'm making the same amount of money, you know, I, I would rather more people use my app. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not just, you know, uh, stingy and greedy and just want to make as much as possible and don't want people to have my app. I want people to use the app, but I got to figure out what a sustainable price is for that app. And so. Uh, the problem with having more users is that, that with my app, I do have reoccurring costs. So I have server uh, sync, and so the more users who use my sync, the more server architecture I need to, to, to keep running. Uh, and then I also have uh, a, a friend of mine does tech support part-time. And so the more people who use the app, the more people are going to ask, you know, why isn't this working or why doesn't that? And so, so I have incremental costs associated with uh, every new user. Now, th those are very small in percentage, uh, but I still have to consider, does $2.99 make sense even if I'm making the same amount of money if it increases my incremental cost? So, you know, there's just, there's, there's so many, so many factors, but, but it is interesting to see that, you know, after about a month, it's kind of leveled off to where I'm making about the same at $2.99 than I was at $4.99. And I think that does support, and, and uh, I have some, 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 new things I'm working on for later this year where I'm going to experiment with some more premium pricing. But it's, so it's interesting that, that there is potential, I think, to maintain a premium price. Um, you just have to, have to figure out ways to make that work uh, in the App Store, which is, 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 is still very challenging. Well, it seems like one of the models, and you talked a little bit about advertising, and it seems like one of the other models that people have been adopting is this idea of an application that's free to download, and then you use in-app purchases to either add functionality or remove ads or things like that. 
And I know, you know, I find especially in games that's really contentious, especially when it comes into the purpose of the, uh, the form of like microtransactions. You get a lot of these games now where it's like, well, you can get so far in this game, and then if you really want to get farther, you have to buy, you know, the in-game currency points or Smurf berries or whatever, and, and somehow then turn that into continuing to be able to play, which I think is a little bit what you're talking about, Dave, with this whole like sort of idea of, I don't know if disingenuous is too strong a word, but there's definitely a, there's a strange idea, like, well, maybe I feel like I'm paying for this thing, and yet now I have to shell over more money in order to get what I thought I was getting in the first place. And do you find that that's, you think that's really been encouraged by this model? And is that, is that making, is that having negative repercussions on the rest of how people view apps because they're not willing to pay for things? I, well, I think, it's, I think it's probably too soon to tell just what that's doing to the ecosystem as a whole and to, to people's perceptions. But, yeah, I mean, David was talking about various games where there are literally psychologists working to get you to, to separate you from your money as quickly as possible and uh, to the greatest extent possible. And, yeah, I, I sort of like the old model where you buy a game and it was $10 and you played the game and that was it. And you didn't have to worry about, you know, buying more currency or more pieces or more lives or anything like that. Uh, and it's something that it definitely, at least for games, sort of makes sense. Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of logical, okay, I'm stuck at this point and I can pay to unlock something. But for other applications, for utilities and, and something like GasCubby or something like our software, uh, where you're recording audio, it's, it's not something that I, I don't think people would put up with it the same way that they have on games thus far. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe that is the model that we're headed towards, and uh, that's how we could make a whole bunch of money. I certainly hope not, though. I want to sell a product that works, and you know, people don't need to keep giving us money to use it. So I'm, I'm hoping that it's not affecting everything, but I, I certainly can't say for sure yet. Yeah, that, that, and that's what's so, so challenging about where we've come. And I think on the Mac, we're not there yet because the Mac App Store... Um, there just hasn't been the volume, both in terms of, of purchases and the volume of apps that have been submitted to the Mac App Store to kind of uh, uh, perpetuate that race to the bottom the same way it is on iOS. Um, but, you know, to, to me, I, th I think one of the biggest challenges, and, and this is what I'm, I'm hoping to experiment more with later this year, uh, but the biggest challenge is that Apple doesn't let you try apps before you buy. And, and I think that if, if users could try an app for five days or even 15 minutes and see, is this a good app? Because what I see happening a lot, and I hear it from other developers, is that you know, somebody's searching for a fuel economy app. And, and there are a lot in the app store. And so I'm up against huge competition. But mine has, has consistently been the best and rated the best and everything like that. But what happens is they see mine at five, at four bu at five bucks. And they say, well, I can spend 99 cents on this other one, and it might be good enough. And they buy it, and they use it, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, often it isn't. So they're like, well, I'll spend 2.99 on this one, and maybe it'll be good enough. And I spent 2.99 on it, it. And you know what? That one stinks. That one just sucks. Like, it just hasn't been updated. It's just a terrible app. So they're like, well, okay, well, I'm going to try this other 99 cents. So what ends up happening is you have, you have their like $10 of value that they care about their fuel economy is spread across several developers, two or three of which are just making terrible apps. And the software they end up with that they paid $10 as a whole doesn't go to the developer they end up, whose app they end up using. So, um, so I think that's one place where, where um, free apps within app purchase can work. Um, 
you know, if you can give away a free app and have advertising in it, and even if the advertising doesn't make much money, either you know have the in-app purchase to disable fee to enable more features or to disable the advertising. I think that model can work, but in my opinion, it, it's such a hack. <laughs> like, I just wish Apple would let us like offer a 10-day trial or something like that, because even like showing ads, like if somebody downloads my app. I don't want their first experience to see some like, you know, uh, there's some ads right now that, that I'm trying to get out of my mirror app even where it pretends to be a Facebook notification to trick people into clicking it. And that's not, you know, like, you know, that's not the experience I want people to have in my app to see this fake Facebook notification that's tricking them into clicking on it. And so I would rather the first experience of my app be my app. And, and, and then if they want to purchase it, they purchase it. If they don't, they don't. Um, but because of these business models that are uh, emerging in the store and, and everything we just talked about, um, you know, that's, that's just what it's going to have to be. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't see many other ways around it. So, you know, I think the free model can work, but it's, it's just it's, it's not optimal, in my opinion, and, and the way I view my customers and potential customers. I, th I think you raise a really good point with the demo idea. And I, I ran into this myself last week. I was trying to buy an app, uh, a game off the Mac App Store. And I looked down the list of system requirements to see if it would run on my Mac. And it actually had conflicting information on the page. And I said, well, it would be great if I could just download this and see if it would actually run and then decide whether or not to buy it. But I couldn't. So I had to email the people and say, I have this computer. Will it actually run? But, and that's a key difference from the way that, for example, you guys have distributed when you've worked off the Mac App Store and in all these years that you've developed Mac software. This has been a, a big part of it is letting people download and try things. I'm curious, is that, is that one of the major sort of fallbacks you find? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with David that both as a customer and a developer, uh, especially as a developer, but as a customer as well, uh, being able to try something before you buy it just makes sense. You don't, you don't buy a car without test driving it. Uh, and this obviously isn't that big of a purchase, but there's no technological reason why we can't have demos like this. It's just something that Apple is not allowed right now. And coming from a place where we've released software for almost a decade before the App Store, we've always had free trials and we've always said, hey, download it. We'd rather you download it before you bought it because we don't want you to buy it unless it's actually going to work for you. We don't want to get that sale if someone's just going to be upset and say, oh, I wish I hadn't spent the money on this. So it's certainly something where we see a big difference just in terms of the customer experience and sort of a negative, uh, negative difference in that it's just not as good. And, and I think it plays into the pricing that we were talking about in that if you don't have a chance to try it before you purchase it, you're not willing to spend as much money up front because you're not certain that it's going to be something that you want. If you spend 99 cents on something and it doesn't turn out to be useful for you or it doesn't turn out to be very much fun if it's a game, I mean, it's a dollar. It's not the end of the world. If you have a $30 application, and you buy it and you realize, hey, this doesn't do what I needed, or like you said, it doesn't even run on my computer, you're not going to be very happy about that. And I think it sort of drives, it plays into driving the prices down that we were talking about before. And, I, and I'm curious, I mean, this is, this is one of those policy decisions that, that Apple has made that, that changes the field for a lot of developers. And certainly a lot of the policies that Apple has implemented in the app stores over the last several years have been a source of a lot of contention for people. Um, and so I'm curious, I mean, there's a different experience here because on the iOS side, there was no, I mean, aside from sort of jailbreaking your phone and installing software, there wasn't really another op uh, alternative when the App Store came out. Um, whereas on the Mac side, you know, Mac software has been around for years. And so I'm, I'm curious about just in general, 
what kind of sort of policy limitations besides the idea of you know not having a demos that you find particularly uh, impede your ability to create the kind of product that you want to create? Is there anything in particular that you know a, the way that the system is set up? I mean, I know for example on on your side, especially like uh, on the Mac software, there's some a lot of your Mac software would not work in the app store. They wouldn't accept it. Well, right, in terms, of, in terms of the restrictions that they have. But beyond that, it's, it's from a business perspective, it's more just the ability to have a real relationship with our, our customers. Uh, if you buy something through one of the app stores, you're effectively Apple's customer. Even though you're using one of our products or you know, somebody's product that Apple is just reselling effectively, only Apple has any information about who you are and you know, what you're doing with that software. And that's something that's they've basically inserted themselves as a middleman. And like we talked about, there are a lot of benefits to that, that there's now one place to go and look for software, and that's great. And there are, the, there are these charts where you can get on those charts and make a whole lot of money. But you also lose a whole lot in that we don't have a relationship with our customers anymore. And so we can't do things like, oh, hey, you bought this one application. Uh, maybe you'd like this companion application, and here's a coupon for it. We can't issue that sort of coupon. Uh, the way that we can when we're doing direct sales. And that's a huge thing for us in that we have a huge user list of people who have purchased our software directly from us, and we contact that user list very rarely, but every once every couple, uh, a couple times a year, rather, and we say, hey, we've got a brand new application. Maybe you want to check it out. Here's a discount on it. And that's phenomenal for sales for us, that we've got thousands of people instantly checking this software out. And in the App Store, you just don't have any sort of relationship where you can do that. And so I think for me, at least, it's something where we had a whole lot of freedom in terms of how we sold things and in terms of what we created, as you mentioned, but also you know, coupons and deals and basically flexibility that is not there in the App Store. And so I'm, in, I'm actually interested in what you think, because like you said, you came from, from scratch. This is the only thing you've known. But so what have you felt is missing? Well, I, 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 I have a very long list and, and have blogged that, those lists many occasions and, and sat with Apple employees and had discussions about these lists. I can't think of them all off the top of my head, but 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 one of the things that that I feel is is really important uh, that that Apple's not allowing developers to do um, is to track sales um, from um, from source to completion of sale. So you know one of the one of the most one of the biggest innovations of of selling things on the internet has been the ability to, to track customers. So, um, you know, the reason Google makes all the money they make is because you search um, skateboard in Google and you click on an ad for skateboards and you're, you know, they're able to track that click to what skateboards you looked at and what you purchased. And, you know, we can get into user privacy and all that and I'm not going to. Um, and, and, and I think Google tracks a little too much. Um, but there's an aspect to um, being able to figure out where my sales are coming from. I am just completely flying blind. So, so, so Paul, having operated before the, the, the App Store, you know, can at least get a sense of where things have been coming from. And, and, and when, when he, you know, a, a purchase is made on his site, he probably has some analytics to know where that came from. And he can track coupon codes when he offers discounts and things like that. I'm flying completely blind. I mean, I guess. I mean, I tell people, I'm like, I think a lot of my business comes from search, that people go to the app store and search fuel economy. But then gas company's been reviewed very highly all across the web. Um, I see incoming search results from Google to, to my website. And so I think, well, you know, 
there's probably some people searching on the internet and then going from the internet to a review to the app store, maybe. And then I think, well, you know, I have other promotions I do on Twitter and I've tried advertising and it's like, I don't know. I don't know where, I mean, this is, this is my business, this is my livelihood, this is what puts food on the table and like, I don't know. And, and it's really disconcerting, honestly. Because I just, like, I, I, I feel like half the time I can't run my business like a business because there's just, I'm just in the dark on so many things that are such uh, fundamental um, uh, parts of running almost any business. I mean, if you run a bakery and you put an ad in the paper with a, with a coupon code or, you know, like, th there's so many ways in a normal business to, to get a better understanding of who your customers are, uh, where they're coming from, build those relationships with customers and things like that. In the app store, it's it, I'm just flying blind. And the, you know, and there's ways in the app. You know, I could, you know, ask for people's email addresses from the app. I could put a survey in the app, asking people where they found the app and things like that. But but you know, as a user, do you really want to like have this thing pop up asking you for an email in an app? That's not that's not what a user wants. So I don't want to do that as a developer. So you know, there's. There's a, there's a lot of little subtle things that, that, that users wouldn't even think about that, that, that make doing business in the App Store challenging. And, and Apple's, the way they run the store and the policies that they create around that um, make, it, make it just a completely different experience trying to run a business within that little walled garden um, than if I were, you know, pretty much running any other business on the planet. I mean, and... and you know, one thing I, I've kind of got, because I've blogged so much about all these things, and, and uh, you know, it's an incredible opportunity. And I don't want to discount the fact that in, you know, four years I've been able to grow a business from nothing to, you know, completely providing for my family and, and doing well and everything. So there's incredible opportunity, and Apple's done an amazing job with so many things. Um, but there's, you know, there's still challenges left, for sure. I mean, I think we, we circled around this with a lot of the topics, what we talked about, but... I think this is this is an important point. There are now you know half a million apps on on the App Store, and so what you end up with is this huge catalog, right, of all of these applications. And so what it becomes really challenging to do is find a way to make your app stick out. As you said, there's dozens of other you know gas fuel you know fuel economy style apps. So how do you make your app stand out when? The app store is, in some ways, in some ways, very egalitarian, right? If you search for fuel economy, it shows you everything that's related to that. But Apple also still has its own little highlights, you know, picks and stuff like that. But is there, is there a way, is there a way to, you know, put your app forward without just crossing your fingers and hoping that Apple decides that it's worth featuring? Um, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if, granted, if you knew the answer, then, then maybe that yeah, would be, maybe you wouldn't answer, want to share it. I don't know. Be a millionaire. No, I, I mean, I think there's some really obvious things. I mean, you know, we work really hard on our apps. So, you know, when you, when you see user reviews of, of most of my apps, you know, it's not buggy software. So if, if somebody's complaining, they're complaining because they don't like a feature or they don't understand. You know, the, the way our fuel economy and, and maintenance tracking works, it, it is a little complex, and, and we're working to make that even easier. Um, but, you know, they're not complaining because the app is crashing all the time. So, you know, building good software helps. Um, uh, you know, I work really hard on, on the, the visual aesthetic of our app. So, you know, I hire a professional icon artist to do the icons. I mean, in the app store, the icon is kind of the, um, you know, billboard for an app. You know, if, it, if, it, if it's a really cheesy icon and, and 
you know, looks like you threw it together from clip art, you know, you're going to perceive, be perceived as less professional and, and, uh, and people are going to just assume that the app is, is less, is probably more buggy or less uh, polished. Um, and then, then, you know, in the screenshots, you know, similarly, you know, if, 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 if you can put a good foot forward and people can see through the screenshots, you know, that, that the app looks good, I think all those things contribute to people being more willing to buy. Um, but at the end of the day, those are things that aren't that challenging to overcome. I mean, for, you know, and, for, for... And when you have half a million apps, certainly plenty of them are not going to be very good, but a, a good percentage of them are going to be able to get to that base level of quality. Yeah. And you're going to be competing against still a large number of similar products that all have that base level of quality. And I, I like your answer that maybe there's, there's a solution for this, but we certainly don't know what it is yet. Uh, and, and I don't know that anyone really has a good answer. Certainly, the, the, the best answer seems to be be a big company already. Like EA has made a whole lot of money in the store. And you know, other, other large companies have done pretty well with their software because they already have a large user base and can say, hey, we have this and come check it out. But if you're a small, you know, a small startup or someone who's just starting out, I think it's, there's not really a good, there's not a good solution to this, or there's not a good answer that's obvious. Yeah, and, and I hear a lot of people say, well, well, of course you need to market. And, and I, I was working on my taxes earlier this month, and I spent less than $1,000 last year on marketing. And any normal business person would look at my, my business finances and say, that's ridiculous. You are... You are running your business into the ground by not marketing your apps. But the, the problem is, and, 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 and I, I am by no means perfect at this and no means have like solved these things conclusively, but I have spent a lot of money on advertising. And the, the problem is you, you can't get dollar for dollar returns on, on advertising. Now, you look at most businesses and it's hard to get a dollar for dollar return on advertising, but, but then you gotta look at, well, what are the benefits? And so if you can, if you can pay $5 to acquire a customer that you make $2.99 on, that makes sense if you develop a relationship with this customer and over time they buy more apps, they buy other apps, you know, you have other things that you offer them. So, so you can make money doing that if you know the numbers and, and, and you know you can acquire a user for this and make that. Well, in the app store, that's it. So, so like, if I can acquire a user for, for $10 and sell them a $2.99 app, I'm going to go out of business marketing. And, and, and what I've found through my experimentation um, is even with, with the price of advertising getting lower and lower, especially advertising in other mobile apps, I still can't make money advertising. So paid advertising is out. So, you know, I do spend a lot of time uh, talking with good folks like Dan who work at in the press. And, you know, and, and that's always hit or miss of, as to whether apps will get um, uh, reviewed or not. Um, but, but that's about the only way to really market is, is to get an app, you know, featured in the press or featured by Apple and, and, and those things. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I hear all the critiques and I see other people blog about it and play Monday morning quarterback. But at the end of the day, the app store, running a business in the app store is so different because of Apple. And that, that's what it really boils down to is that, and every business has its quirks, every business has challenges, you know, I'm, you know we should, we're not guaranteed anything in life, much less like trying to make money in, a, in, a, in any business. But there's a shape that, that, that this market has that, that Apple has created, both from you know, the, the price of apps dropping to not being able to demo, 
to not having analytics on who's buying the apps, to not being able to build a relationship. And so it's, it's just a, it's a really strange place to do business because you're, you, you have certain tools that a normal business would have, but then others are taken from you. And, and so as much as it's an incredible opportunity, as much money is being made, it's, especially for an independent developer who doesn't have the big name like an EA, it's just, it's a very challenging place to do business. And, and it, you know, um, it, it, all those things, and I think going back to your original question, all those things really shape the way I build apps and shape the apps I build or don't build. You know, I've had some really, really cool ideas for apps, um, and I've even spent tens of thousands of dollars on apps and not launched them because you just get to a point where, you know, where you're throwing good money after bad if you're building an app that you know is not going to succeed given the constraints of the app store. And, and that's, that's what frustrates me about the whole situation is that there's a lot of great apps being built, but, but the apps that are being built are shaped by all these factors. And I think there's a lot of really good software and a lot of innovation that's not happening because the business opportunity is what it is. There's opportunities, there's great business opportunities in the app store for hit-driven apps, and the opportunity that those opportunities and the and and the way it all works shapes what's being created, and and I think a lot of the apps I would probably use personally and and enjoy aren't being created because of that. Well, just to close out here, I want to ask one last question, which is I think there's a I don't know if fear is strong enough for it, but this idea that you know the iOS the App Store has been around since day one, it's pretty much limited what you can run on it. Uh, run on an iOS device. You can only get it from the App Store. I think there is a worry in a lot of people's minds that the Mac App Store will go in the same direction. Um, do you think this is, is that something you think likely to happen, or do you think that's just a terribly foolish move that Apple would not make? Well, I don't think that's an either-or question, actually. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's something where, as a businessman who makes Mac software, and we have one app in the Mac App Store now, but we have several apps that with the restrictions Apple has in place, we couldn't get into the App Store. They would simply not allow us to sell them there. It's something we have to be concerned about. We, we have to think, is this going to happen? Is it possible? It's certainly possible at this point. Uh, two years ago, the, the Mac App Store didn't exist. So the way the iOS platform was locked down couldn't possibly happen on the Mac. Once the Mac App Store came out, it's, OK, right now we can sell our software ourselves, or we can sell it through the App Store. But five years from now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, will we still be able to do that? I certainly hope the answer is yes. Uh, I've hoped the answer for that would be yes on the iOS platform as well, and that hasn't happened and certainly hasn't seemed to slow down the growth of the iPhone. So is it something where eventually Apple is trying to lock everyone into the Mac App Store? I, I don't know, and I certainly have to be wary of it and have to consider, hey, if that's happening, when will we see it, and how much time, how much notice will we have, and what can we do about it? And certainly that played into our releasing our first Mac App Store app was that we have... We have a product called Piezo. It lets you record audio on your Mac. And we have a larger, sort of more complex product called Audio Hijack Pro. And it does some of the same things, and it does a whole lot more. And we released Piezo specifically because we wanted to get some of this functionality into the store, even though a lot of the functionality in the application wouldn't be allowed. And so we said, all right, let's make sort of a simplified version that will pass all the restrictions that they have. And it's sort of a way to hedge our bets that if if things do get locked down, this is already in the store and it's, it's acceptable to Apple apparently, but it's not necessarily the exact application we want to be creating because it's not as powerful as the original application that it's sort of based on. And so it's something where we're just saying, all right, well, we'll test this out and we'll see how the App Store works. 
And you know, if, if there comes a day when that's the only way we can release software, we probably want to be in there. But hopefully it's not what's happening. I guess right. we don't, I mean, we don't know and we sort of have to be concerned about it. Well, I, I hate to end on such an apocalyptic sound, but it is 2012, so I guess that's appropriate. We've only got 11 months anyway, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a big worry, really. Um, so that's about it. I'd like to wrap it up. I'd like to thank my guests, Paul Kfasis, CEO of Rogamiba, and Dave Barnard, founder of AppCubby. I'm Dan Morin from Macworld. Thanks, you all, for watching. Thank you.